Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest, Carolyn Waters, recounts the big moment of crisis when she realized the career she'd spent building for the last 20 years may not be the life she was meant to live. In spite of the fears of leaving an established career behind and the fear she may never find her path, hear the outcome of how this one step into the unknown ended up with her finding a surprising new career and life, both of which may be the one that was intended for her. Please welcome Carolyn Waters. Welcome, Carolyn. We start the show off. I ask one question, and the question is, was there an event in your life that was challenging either personally, professionally, that changed the direction of your life? Well, it took a long time to get there, but yes, I quit my job. I just stone cold quit. And And what had you been doing? I was working as a client executive at Mellon Financial. I had been a management consultant for many years, had worked in financial services. And I just had reached a point, I think, I don't know, call it a midlife crisis or something. I don't know. But it took a long, long time. But I finally got to a point where I thought I have to just do something else. And there was a terrifying terrifying thing. I mean, you know, you spend 20 years building a career and being successful and being promoted and and to think that it's not really what you're supposed to be doing. You know, a lot of people think about quitting, but you don't actually do it. And you're not the only person who's impacted. I'm married and my husband would have to sign on to this. It got to a point where I was like, I have to do this, but I had a plan. You know, I'm a planner. I mean, I'm not that kind of person. I wish I were sometimes. You know, I was a little more um, spontaneous, spontaneous, but that's not me. So I had a plan. So you just one day decided to quit. But could you go back to maybe finding or identifying a breaking point for you? I don't know that there was a single breaking point. I think that it had been building for a long time. There were things that I liked about what I was doing. And certainly I liked the recognition that I was getting and that sort of thing. And I liked the traveling. I traveled a lot for work and I liked that. But I think it's just, you're working 12, 14 hour days and it's tiring and your clients are demanding and you don't have time for things that are, that you enjoy. You and I both enjoy reading and realizing one day that you hadn't read a book in like years. It's sort of like, wait, what's going on here? Something has got to give. So I don't think it wasn't like one moment for me. It had been building for a long time. I'm sure you were pretty methodical. So I'm going to quit this job and you probably had some savings and you had a, a plan. Can you tell us what the plan looked like? I thought if I quit, I obviously have to be able to 
continue to live my life and for how long. I stopped and I thought about the fact that, okay, I have savings. How long could I realistically be without a job before I, it would be a problem for me and for my husband? As I said, you're also thinking about somebody else's life being impacted as well. So I really thought about that. And I also was thinking about what if I take this time off, a sort of self-imposed sabbatical, and I can't figure it out. I can't figure out what I want to be when I grow up. So that was kind of terrifying too, because I thought all these years, I mean, everybody says, do what you love. And I'm like, I don't know what I love because I haven't really had the time to think about it. But what if I never figure it out? That was scary too. So I had this plan that I could go for like six months. I gave myself six months and said, I'm going to kind of shut it down for six months and I'm going to just explore what I'd like to do and go to museums again and read books and volunteer and just sort of slow down. And the six months was on purpose as well because I didn't want it to be so long that I couldn't go back to doing what I was doing, that people wouldn't forget about me and the good work I'm doing if, in fact, I needed to go back. And that was my backup plan if I couldn't figure it out. So I had that, what if I can't figure this out, what I want to do for the rest of my life? I could go back and work with the clients I'd been working with or my former colleagues or back in the consulting world. I kept those contacts up on the just-in-case. It's really fascinating because I think that a lot of people can relate to that sense of not knowing what they love to do. Everybody goes through the motion of, yes, we go to college, you get a degree, you get a job, you start working, you get married, you start a family, and you're just on this treadmill. And there's not a moment where you have this reflection of, wow, if I got off the treadmill, what would I want to do? So how did you face down that terror of the unknown? Because there was a good chance that you might not have discovered something that you wanted to do. I wasn't sure that it was really scary too. And also a little depressing because thinking, what if I take this time off and I've lost the six months of my career that I've been building all these years and I have to kind of go back, you know, tail between my legs, like, I don't have any interests that I want to pursue for the rest of my life. You know, some people just know, and you hear those stories, people that they always loved wine and they start these wineries and, you know, whatever. And it's like, well, good for you. And how do you know you're going to want to do that for the rest of your life? I went into it just being kind of open. And my initial feeling was just to spend some time doing things that I knew I had enjoyed in the past and hadn't had a lot of time to spend Anytime. So I went to a lot of museums. I mean, I went to every museum in New York multiple times. I spent days exploring the Met and the Frick and the Whitney. And I went to the public library and I started trolling the stacks and reading things that I might never have picked up before. I read so many books. I traveled around some. I started volunteering at the New York Public Library because it felt like this was a good place for me. I had always loved libraries and my aunt was a librarian. I loved being in the stacks and I thought here's an opportunity for me to spend time in a place that I really 
felt comfortable and enjoyed. Also give back a little bit and use the time to reflect, maybe explore the stacks, maybe find something there, some interest that I hadn't quite explored. It hadn't really occurred to me that the library itself was going to be the place that was going to be sort of my salvation, but, but that's kind of where it started. And then can you tell the audience the next phase of this journey? Just because if they don't know what it is you do currently, I yeah. think they'll find it fascinating. <laughs> I will say- I It's could... like the big reveal here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm now the head librarian at the New York Society Library, which is the oldest library and oldest cultural institution in New York City. We were founded in 1754. And I credit the librarians at the New York Public Library, totally separate library, not related to the library I work in right now, with being the ones who sort of pushed me to go back to library school because they were really encouraging and really felt that this is something that I should do. So six months to the day that I quit my job, you know, my self-imposed sabbatical timeframe was the date that I was accepted to library school. Where did you get your master's? I went to the Pratt School. The Pratt, oh, nice. Yeah. Which, is, you know, is the oldest continuously operating library school in the country, um, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing for me is that I've never actually worked in any other library. When I was in library school, I was hired as a circulation assistant, basically, you know, a paraprofessional, the person who checks in and checks out your books at the New York Society Library. And I've never left. I joke that I've had pretty much every job in the library. And I think that's kind of true. I was a bibliographic assistant. I was an acquisitions librarian. I was a reference librarian. I was the assistant head librarian. And now I run the place. So um, it's like, so I've kind of like gone back to doing on the same sort of path I was on before, but the environment's different. The whole vibe is different. And I really feel like I've found the where I'm supposed to be. So people may not know that there's an actual thing as library school. So you know what I mean? Like people know that they're librarians, (laughs) but they don't know that people actually go to school to become a librarian, right? Yeah. Can you describe a little bit of what that educational process looks like? It's funny you say that because all my former colleagues in my former life, when I finally did reveal what I was going to do. I mean, I mean, I was afraid they were going to think what is going on. Like, and I got the same questions, like you have to go to school for that. So it's a little insulting, I think, to all the librarians out there who spend a lot of time going to school, but it's a process of learning traditional librarianship, cataloging and the cataloging systems and reference work, how to find information, which obviously has changed a lot over the years. Despite what people think, everything is not on the internet. So there is a lot to be said for the work that librarians do in trying to source data and find information. But it's changed a lot because of the internet. So a lot of library schools, Pratt School has also, Pratt Institute has changed to the School of Information rather than the School of Library and Information Science, which is what it was when I went to school there, because it is all about information. I think it's a little sad that a lot of library schools are taking the word library out as if it's a bad a bad word. I don't know, but it's a process of understanding information systems and how to find systems, how to catalog systems. And um, it's very specific information, um, very different from how you search on, let's say, 
Google, Google. get a hundred thousand hits of stuff. And most of it is not exactly what you're looking for. It's very specific when you're looking in scholarly journal databases and things like that. You're looking for very specific information and you can narrow it down very, very precisely. I met you very kind of early on in your career and I've watched you take one promotion, then another promotion, (laughs) then another promotion, and now you run the library, right? That's not the normal trajectory of people. Obviously, there's something within you, aside from your incredible work ethic and obviously smarts, that has enabled you take one profession, quit, and then translate it into a success in a completely different profession, a completely different field, a completely different life. Can you figure out what that is within yourself that, you know, there are parallels to both stories, right? Like you were very successful in your former career and you are kind of at the top of your professional world in this career. What is it within you that propels you to achieve that kind of steady climbing and steady success? I don't know. I mean, a lot of times I think it's just, it's all a big mistake. It's like, what am I doing? You know? Well, I was going to make a reference to Mr. Magoo because what I could say that watching you get one promotion after the other and you would be like, what? It was kind of like watching Mr. Magoo driving the car, right? And it sort of like flies in the face of like why I did this in the first place. It wasn't to be this ambitious person. It was to create a different type of life for myself where I had time for myself and a better work-life balance and all of that. So you could say like, good God, Carolyn, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? But it's different, I think, when you found what it is that you want to do, I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, I will say that at every point that I have been at a crossroads of getting promoted and moving to a different level here at this particular job in this library, I have really agonized over the question of whether I should take it or stay in the position I'm in because I didn't want to go back to where I was and having no time to go to museums and read books. And I mean, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you're a librarian. That's all you do is read books. But I mean, it's kind of funny. You, you have sort of less time, <laughs> you know, but I don't know what it is, except that I am and I like challenges. I mean, I like doing new things. I mean, I've always volunteered for different projects at the library. I mean, all along, I started Early on in my career at the New York Society Library, I started the writer services programming. You know, we had always been a place for lots of writers, but we didn't have any specific programming for writers. So I took that on and really enjoyed it. It was a great joy to do that. And I think when you're taking on things like that, people notice that you're interested in taking on these new challenges. We had a great content-rich website, but it wasn't very inviting. It wasn't very user-friendly that was a big project. I mean, a huge project took us a year to redo our website. Of course, I look at it now and I think, oh, it's time to do that again. Volunteering for projects like that. So I think it's just being interested in taking on new challenges and not having any single day that looks exactly like the day before it. So when you quit your job, how old were you? I was in my 40s, 40, 
43, I guess, 44. Yeah, I was in my, my mid 40s. So you made that career switch in your 40s. Yeah. Okay. So I guess you could call it a midlife crisis, I guess. <laughs> so instead of the, you know, the car, the car, I mean, you know. And then you were talking about how you feel, and I know you work incredibly hard in this position. And I've seen you struggle with that question of work-life balance. You said something that really caught my ear, which is that there's a difference to this and the challenges of working so hard and running an institution that's different than what you experienced before. And do you think that has a lot to do with you stepping into perhaps what is meant to be your life's path? I hope so. You have to figure out those pieces, those things that are your interest. I mean, it's really a cliche. That career advice has always been do what you love. And we talked about that earlier. I mean, it's for a lot of people, that's pretty obvious. They can make a living doing what they love. And for a lot of other people, I don't think they can see a way to do that. And I think then there's other people who if you start doing what you love, then you don't love it so much anymore. So there's that fear too, that what if you do what you love and then you no longer get joy out of that thing that you used to like to do because now it's work. There's that challenge too. Have you run into that recently? There are always elements of every job, I think, that you don't particularly love, but you have to look at it like you enjoy majority of what you're doing and you have to deal with these other things. Have you ever had a moment where you look back and you think, ah, maybe this wasn't the right decision? Or have you ever had a moment where you could reflect back and say, I wonder what my life would look like if I hadn't made the choice to quit? I think about that all the time. Really? Yeah. I think where would I be if I had not if I had not quit my job, I mean, I'm thinking, would I even have a job in this environment this past year? You know, I spent many years consulting as well. It's interesting to see, I'm still in touch with many of the colleagues that I used to work with, and some of them have retired and retired early, and others have moved on to different jobs, but in the same career. It's interesting, but I do think about it because I do try to remind myself that it was the right thing for me to do. And Mm -hmm. Even if I have these days or these challenges in my current job, it's still so much more rewarding than what I was doing before. So it's worthwhile just stopping and reflecting to remind yourself. And then when you were in that six-month period, did you ever have moments of like, well, I could just fly planes or, you know how, you know how people can be kind of fanciful if you give yourself the freedom to be right. I mean, and you gave yourself this timetable to do that exactly. So did you ever have those moments? And like, what were the things that would come to mind? There are things that I do that other people kind of scratch your head and are like, I would never do that in a million years. I like to backpack and I like to go into the woods for 10 days at a time, carrying everything on my back. And a lot of people wouldn't want to do that. I don't think it's unusual or odd. And I would think about, is there a way to make that my career? Could I start a company where I lead people on hiking trips and backpacking trips and things? But I would think that, and then I would really say, you know what? I would hate that because then I would not enjoy doing this anymore. Because one of the things that I really love about 
going on backpacking trips is the solitude. Well, I think it's so interesting that you pick the two things and you use the word solitude, which I was kind of thinking at the time when you were talking about your backpacking. But in a way, there's a parallel between the way I envision someone working in the library profession, that they have an immense need or capacity for solitude, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I think that that's true of most librarians, I would say. And so what's ironic is that you have a very public-facing job, (laughs) (laughs) right? Even though you work in an institution that to me is about solitude and quiet and, you know, reflection, you have a very public-facing job. How do you reconcile that your innate desires in a way going against the job requirements? I mean, it's true. And it's funny because obviously also as a nonprofit institution, I mean, a big part of my job too is raising money for the institutions. And that's not something that I feel very comfortable doing, but it's a part of the job. I have to asking people for money and raising money. And it is a very face-to-face. I think the way that I do it is trying to continue to find ways to carve out pieces of the job that remind me of why I became a librarian in the first place. I know that that was the professional, you know, come to Jesus moment where you were like, <laughs> okay, I have to quit and make changes in my <laughs> life. Were there any other challenges that you faced that in a way have really shaped how you view your life or how you view life in general? My husband was very sick for a while, diagnosed with stage four melanoma. And that was a terrifying, terrifying time. And I think that also sort of is a moment where you sort of take stock of your life and you think you really have to take care of yourself and you shouldn't have to have a moment like that or challenges like that to take stock of your life and give yourself, you know, time to appreciate what you have and look to the future. But, um, but a lot of us do have those moments, you know, and that's serves as a reminder, I think. Was he sick when you were making this career change? It was after I had already made the change. It was actually not long after I had basically graduated from library school and got my first full-time job as a librarian. It wasn't too much longer after that, actually. You were starting a new career and taking care of your husband at the same time. I was, yeah. You know, in a way, it was probably you know, a best time to, to go through that is, you know, because my colleagues were so supportive and, um, you know, I didn't have the responsibilities that I had had before. I had the time to be able to do it. And I didn't have those sort of, uh, how do I just stop and take care of him, you know, and get through that. And how do you think that's kind of changed your perspective on an emotional and psychic level? I mean, I can imagine how helpless you must have felt because in a way you were, I mean, there was nothing that you could do to cure him, right? Yeah, I think though, interestingly, because I didn't really have time to think about, I don't know how to best put this, but I didn't have time to feel like this was a, we weren't going to get through this or whatever. I was so focused on, everything that we could do. And I think having the, um, being so busy 
taking notes. I mean, you know, you're being a caregiver. You're the person who is, I mean, taking copious notes of everything that's going on. And, you know, I was so focused around doing it that, you know, I had this job to do. Maybe, I mean, you know, sort of the way that, you know, you approach sort of anything else. I mean, doing all that planning, like we're going to do this, we're going to do that. You know, I'm doing this research. I'm doing this because he was having all these very complicated emotions himself and not really able to focus on it and how scary it was. And I just felt very sort of focused on what I could do. So it gives you a purpose, you know, to get your loved one through this. Um, Was there a moment, because I know some people, yes, when you're in the throes of something so challenging that you just put your head down and one foot forward at a time, and you're not really able to process on an emotional level, the sheer impact of it all. Was there a moment after he was well or had gotten better where it kind of hit you? We have these moments where we think about it now. And at the time, it didn't occur to me that he wasn't going to get better. I was focused on the fact that we had the best doctors, he had the best care, we were doing everything we possibly can. And it's only now that I look back and I think I have worked out that way. Other people may have thought that. I think other friends and family may have thought that. It didn't occur to me until later because I was so focused. You know, in some cases, I mean, people might, might say I was a little too sort of wallow in any kind of, you know, you got to do this. You got to, you know, you got to walk around the hospital room. You got to keep your strength up. You got to, you know, you know, sort of that sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. um, at the time, I don't think it really hit me. You know, I wasn't thinking about what could be at the time. I was just focused on what had to happen, what, what we had to do. So I, I interviewed somebody else who went through cancer herself and also going through divorce and facing economic challenges. And she said that she had a breaking point. All of a sudden, one day she's standing in front of Chelsea Market and she just started crying, you know, just on the street corner. She couldn't figure out why. And it was as if she'd been it, all that pent up anxiety, fear, all of it kind of washing over her in that one moment. So did you ever have a moment like that where you're just kind of, you know, it was was too much and you much later after everything was done that you had that kind of breakdown or emotional breakthrough? Well, I do remember one moment where in the middle of everything then had to have emergency surgery. And my mother, and my mother I guess I had called her from the hospital room to tell her and she had gotten on a train and come in and met me at the hospital. And then we were back in my apartment. And I remember this, my apartment is very small. It's a studio apartment. There's no place to hide really. And I was in the bathroom, I think, and I closed the door and I just broke down and I was just bawling. And I just finally like let it all out. And, um, you know, thinking she can't hear me in here. I'm, but she did. She had heard me. You know, I came out, my dried my eyes, and I was like, okay, so we order some dinner and, you know, we'll do this. And then, you know, we'll go back to the hospital tomorrow morning or whatever. And, you know, and she sort of took me aside and was like, you know, you can talk to me. You know, she said, you don't have to be this person that can't let it out. She said, I, I heard you in there. You know, I heard you crying. And that was, sort of a big relief. You feel like you have to be strong for everybody else because everybody else is breaking down around you. And you're the one person that's like, 
got it all together and you, you're keeping everybody else together and, um, and trying to convince everybody else that everything's going to be okay. So I do, I do recall that one moment in particular because it, it just got into that point. Yeah. So if you could offer advice to anyone who is maybe themselves facing that career dissatisfaction, you know, knowing that they're not doing what they're meant to be doing, like what words of advice could you offer them? You know, and knowing that everybody has responsibility. So it's not as though we can just quit and walk away and be like, okay, I'm going to go to the, you know, Adirondacks for a while. You know, what advice could you offer someone if facing that moment of, I'm obviously doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing with my life. I don't know that I'm qualified to give advice to people. I think, I think everybody's situation is so unique. You have to find your own path. You have to figure out what it is that you're dissatisfied with and try to focus in on that. What you're saying is there's no one path. Part of the process is in finding and making your own path. There's not a prescription to follow that will get you to that place, but rather that it's more about the self-reflection and giving yourself the opportunity to do that will perhaps lead you to the path of wherever it is you're meant to go. The last question I like to ask is always a little out of left field, and Uh I'm not going to ask you about books because that's unfair. (laughs) so I'm going to ask you to name if you could name one song that resonates with kind of your life what would that song be you know I always love the Chicago song feeling stronger every day oh that song just fills me with a lot of joy and I think it's true so does that song describe you now or kind of describes your journey to this moment I think it's the whole journey I think it's the whole journey. I don't feel like my path is ended. I mean, I still think about, is there a third act in my life? I don't know. I don't think so, but there could be. I love it. Well, see, and so that's the genesis of the show is that it's my belief women more than men can live a thousand lives in one because we do have this incredible capacity, most of us, to reinvent and to redo and make changes. I think that's a great way to end. And I love that idea that you still think about the possibility of a third act. It's beautiful. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they go ask me why I do it. I'm going to say this because we going to be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, 
Once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.